Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and joining us once again today is our good friend, Kate Trinko, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Signal. Kate, welcome back. I'm so happy to be here when Lauren is not here, so we are not <laughs> discussing TikToks. It's going to no, be great. No TikToks, no Kanye West, because Lauren's gone. And I will note that last time I recorded and made a joke about Lauren, apparently Lauren's mom listened and told her. So Lauren's mom, I can't remember your first name, but you're very nice. And if you listen again, it's fine to share with Lauren that I was giving her a hard time. You can, you can rat Kate out. Well, and for the first time ever, also joining us, we are welcoming Nora Sullivan to the show. Nora is a senior writer in development at the Heritage Foundation and an associate scholar at the Charlotte Locher Institute. Nora, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I've never been in the studio before, and it's just great to be here. It's well, an honor. It's yeah. so fancy. <laughs> <laughs> We're pretty fancy. <laughs> well, so I, I sometimes Google like what what today is, you know, what in history was significant about today. Um, and so I found that today was kind of a fun one. February 24th, there's a cool event in history. So we're going to do a little bit of trivia. So February 24th, 1607 going way back. <laughs> was that the day? You have four options. Was it one, the day that English colonists made landfall at Cape Henry in Virginia? Um, was it the day that Spain officially became bankrupt? Was it the day that the first play was ever performed before an audience in England? Or was February 24th, 1607, the world's first opera that was premiered? Oh, that's really hard. So I want to say it's the day Spain officially became bankrupt to really annoy my Spanish brother-in-law who's very <laughs> proud of Spain's history. But my instinct is I don't think it can be the first play performed before an audience in England. That just seems way too late given the Greek plays and stuff. Mm. I don't know anything about Cape Henry. Sorry. Um, and I'm going to say the world's first opera is premiered because I think Spain was still racking up money from the new world at this point. Wow. That's like really good logic. Spelling. I'm very impressed. Um, I feel like I don't know anything about any of these <laughs> topics. It does seem late for a play um, in England. Um, but I think I'm going to go with uh, was it Cape Henry? Yeah, Cape Just Henry. Just because uh, Kate went with the my other logical option. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Kate's right. It is yes! the opera. But it, it's it's a little bit of a trick question, Nora, because uh, the Cape Henry landing was in April. Mm. So you're just off by a couple of months. So, oh, so close. I, I had to pull things that were a little <laughs> bit deceptive. Have you all ever been to an opera? Yes, I have. Okay. It's I've, on my life bucket list. Um, That's... I have a little bit of judgment for that being a bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> it was very classy. You get all dressed up, go sit at the opera. Uh, I went to Madame Butterfly. It was uh, beautiful, but I had no idea what was going on. I had to Google it afterwards, after the whole opera. <laughs> what did I just what, see? What did I see? What was the whole plot? So I've been to several, which is a weird accident of fate because I'm not really an opera person, but I keep befriending people who are opera people, um, including, I think most memorably, I have gone to a bachelorette party that involved an opera. That is which a, was very, a, twist. a very specific <laughs> bachelorette party. Yeah, that, is yeah, that was at the Kennedy Center. Um, one thing I love is, at least in New York, and then, um, sorry, I sound like a total elitist now, but also in Vienna, Austria, <laughs> I went. Um, like, I was there. It's like one of my ever going to be back. I got to do it. Also, fun fact that's not fun. Vienna, Austria is actually pronounced like 
Wien in Austria, and oh, it's Wien. really Wien. Yeah, it's v. like very upsetting. They don't have the ending. They use a W instead of a V. I know, but the W is pronounced like a V. Yeah, but it's a W. I was just like, excuse me. It was it was a traumatic. I I don't know. I was like really into Vienna, and I am not into Vien. Good opera houses now have subtitles in English on the chair in front of you that you can read. Oh, so you can actually good opera tell. Houses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That that is the elitist. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, opera houses with and money. And you're making fun of me for wanting to go to an opera gate. Uh, no, I think you should. I um, I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't completely hate them. I don't know. It's a journey. It's a journey. Sorry, yeah. I've like really derailed this. It's okay. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of journeys, we're going to go on one today. So, Kate, go ahead and tell us what we have queued up on today's show. So on today's Problematic Women, Nora shares what it's like to work in the pro-life movement in America and abroad. Plus, we'll share the best pro-life resources available and powerful tools to share with friends and family to explain why you're pro-life or explore your own pro-life views. And this is a top question for me. Are romantic comedies dead? Why is Hollywood not making rom-coms anymore? And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are so often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really makes a difference. All right. Let's get to it. Well, first off, Problematic Women listeners, I want to share how Nora and I became friends. Um, We became friends because Nora is one of my closest friends, former roommates. Um, This friend who's been a guest on the program, Mallory Carroll, unfortunately got married. I mean, not unfortunately. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Very fortunately. Yeah, yeah. Her husband's great. But like the upshot was she was like, I'm married now. I can't have roommates, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Mallory's going to kill me if she hears this. But anyway, so Nora was... Exiled, so we're no longer neighbors. Um, there's probably a lot more to the story than that, and Mallory will fact check all of this, and it won't be good. <laughs> but anyway, we had the great uh, fortune of living together on the same street during COVID, mm-hmm. and Nora also became very involved with my neurotic dog entanglements. Mm-hmm. Um, Mallory has a high-strung mini poodle, and I have an even higher-strung mini poodle <laughs> who's currently on Prozac, so it's it's. It's a lot. And if you judge me, I judge myself. So don't worry about it. Um, But anyway, that's how Nora and I got to know each other. Right, Nora? Or do you have a totally different version of events? (laughs) That's pretty accurate. (laughs) A lot of dog shenanigans. (laughs) Yeah. No, we would sometimes walk the dogs together, think about their thoughts, not think about their thoughts. (laughs) Dogs brought you together. (laughs) That's great. Um, okay, so Nora, uh, it feels so weird to talk about this formally on air because we've talked about it so much in real life, which this is real life, I guess, but, you know, less real life. <laughs> meta. Um, it's, it's, meta. Real, it's real life with headphones. Yeah. Real life with headphones. I love that. Um, so the pro-life issue touched your family in a really personal way last year. Mm-hmm. So could you tell the audience a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I've worked in the pro-life movement full-time since I got out of college in, in 2010. Um, but I've been involved in some form since I was 14 years old, since high school. But I, 
it was always something that I was active in, but it it never really seemed to to touch my life in such an intimate way until last year um, when my sister-in-law, uh, Teresa, was expecting her fourth child, uh, my nephew. And Also, uh, side note, her other three children, your nieces, are so adorable. They are. And I love looking at the photos. <laughs> <laughs> They're extremely cute. Um, but everyone in our family was very excited uh, about this new baby, um, Teresa and my brother were both very excited. The girls were definitely excited. Um, And then uh, Teresa went in for her 20-week ultrasound. And the the technician and then the doctor um, detected that there wasn't – that something wasn't quite right with um, going on with this baby. And the way they expressed that was um, really – really unfortunate. Um, Rather than trying to link my sister-in-law up with resources to get more information, to try to get to the root of the problem, ways to work with her, um, she was, they really tried to bully her. This doctor really tried to, to bully her into getting an abortion. And, you know, they pointed out that if having a, a disabled baby could be a tremendous cost to a family. They pointed out that it could cost, you know, up, like upwards of a million dollars to keep a baby alive in a in the NICU for three months. And that's something they said to her. Um, it was, you know, what you would almost call like emotional abuse. Uh, asking like, are, are you religious? Like, why would you object to, to all these things? And um, it was, you know, it was kind of a a traumatic moment to hear this news, but then to have that kind of piled on top of it made it even harder for a mother who was going through something so difficult. Yeah, this was during COVID. Was your yes. brother um, in the room? Was her husband there? No, he was not mm-hmm. allowed um, in the room because of COVID restrictions. And so, at one point, they, you know, she pulled him up on the phone, and the doctor. Uh, you know, gave the news to the both of them. And then when my brother was off the phone, you know, the, the kind of bullying behavior continued. And, you know, Teresa had to drive home with that and, you know, feeling so terrible about the news, but also this this pressure and where she would get help. Um, fortunately, uh, you know, pro-life friends were able to uh, connect uh, uh, my sister-in-law and my brother with a pro-life doctor working in New York who who specializes in these really hard cases. And, you know, it was it was a time of intense prayer where none of us really knew what was going to happen, what would be the be the outcome. And ultimately, they realized that the initial assessment was not quite correct. There wasn't anything wrong with the baby himself. There was an issue with there was a they were they had been saying there was a chromosomal abnormality with the baby. Turns out there was an issue with the placenta, mm-hmm. and um, which was kind of inadequate. So he he was having trouble growing. He looked very small, and ultimately he was delivered. You know, very early. He was you know. Like two and a half months premature. He was very. He was a, a tiny little guy, two pounds, 
four ounces, I think. Um, when he was born, and obviously he was in the, the NICU at Columbia University Hospital in, in New York. But he, you know, he has just continued to grow. He's, he's, he's still, he's nine months now, but he is, he's a thriving little boy. Mm. Um, there are like some continuing issues related just that, that preemies have. And m- most doctors say they grow out of them, you know, over time. But if, sh- if she had, hadn't had the convictions that she, my sister-in-law, that she has, if she hadn't been given, you know, if she didn't have this community of support, this family willing to stand by her, you know, it could have been a different outcome. And now she has like this cute <laughs> as a button <laughs> bouncing baby boy. And, you know, that it, it really it really touched me in a in a deeply personal way. All the, you know, the work that I've done over time, especially related to um, women who are given these dire diagnoses and just encouraged to to abort and move on. Yeah. And it, it made it real to me in, an, you know, an even more uh, substantial way. Yeah. That makes it so real. When you spent mm. time mm. working in the pro-life movement in America and you spent time in Ireland as well, yeah. right, working in the pro-life movement, but then to have it touch your own family and to mm. have to walk through that and actually mm. experience like, okay, you know, we're, we're being pressured mm-hmm. by medical professionals to do something that completely contradicts our values. And like you hear those stories and you hear of that happening, but for it to touch you personally, I'm sure that just like rocks your world. It's like, wow, I, I can't believe that this is, is happening. Yeah. I mean, it seemed it seemed like all these, you know, especially in Ireland where the when I was working over there, the the focus was on, you know, babies with uh what the media tend to call like fatal fetal abnormalities. Um you know, especially working with those women, like it was, you know, it was a very painful thing. It could be a very painful thing. But to see the way that they are often subject to abuse by by the people who should be supporting them the most, you know, that that added a whole new level to my to my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said you wrote about this for The Daily Signal a few months ago. You said um women were reaching out to you and saying they'd had similar experiences as mm-hmm. to what your sister-in-law had, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got a I got a you know, it seemed that a lot of women were kind of coming out of the woodwork uh with this information because it I think they don't often have someone they can talk to about it or they feel guilty in some way. It's just a, a huge, you know, burden that they have to bear and a lot of these women, you know, the the dire diagnoses didn't turn out to be correct. You know, I spoke to a woman who was, you know, given a similar kind of diagnosis. They said there was a chromosomal abnormality and they really piled on the pressure. They The doctor was refusing to work with her following. My uh, and in the end... She she didn't have a baby shower because she, she was she was planning for the worst, mm-hmm. and in the end she had a perfectly healthy baby, um, and uh, who's now in law school. Wow! Wow! So maybe not so healthy. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, person, I don't know at all. Um, 
No, I think that's that's so interesting. And I, I think there was a study in the New York Times a couple of months ago. I can't remember the actual data, so I don't want to get into fake news here. But mm-hmm. was just saying, yeah, these these diagnoses are not 100 percent accurate. And yet mm-hmm. people are literally making life or death decisions based on them. Mm-hmm. And um, they're told, you, you know, this is the doctor. This is science. Right. You have to just <sighs> implicit trust rather than, you know, anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think as as we have these conversations and as we talk about being pro-life, like it's so important to understand before we reach those moments mm-hmm. in our own lives or in our family's lives and our friends' lives to have an understanding of why am I pro-life? Because I'm sure, like you said, like if, if your sister-in-law didn't have those convictions, really easy to just be like, OK, well, this is a really unique situation. It's a unique circumstance. Maybe mm-hmm. I should have that abortion. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, one thing I mentioned on the show last week is, gosh, we we need to, especially right now at this moment in history, we need to be figuring out, okay, what do we really believe about life and when it begins and about abortion? Um, so we want to do that on the show today. We actually want to give you all some really practical resources, share a little bit of like our own pro-life journeys, and then what what are the books, who are the individuals, the arguments that have actually helped all of us along our pro-life journey and helped us to form our views and come to the conclusions that we have about abortion and about life. Um, so we're going to we're gonna dive into that conversation in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to get the news every day and keep up with all of the issues that matter. And if you're anything like me, you love researching topics on YouTube and just simply being entertained. And sometimes... It's really hard, though, to know what information on YouTube can be trusted and is well-researched. And that is where the Daily Signal YouTube channel comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the news that you care about, but also that gives you data and facts really succinctly. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews, and so much more. So if you have not already, go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel. And this week, if you subscribe, you will be getting a sneak peek into CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference down in Florida, because the Daily Signal is going to be there. Problematic Women is going to be there. We're going to be posting so many interviews and fun clips from our time there. So it's a great time to be checking out the channel. on the show last week. It's so important at this moment in history to really determine what it is that you believe about abortion and the right to life. Uh, But we don't want to just say something is important without giving you all the resources uh, to actually explain why, why life matters, why it begins at conception. And the reason why this year in particular is so important is that probably uh, in June, definitely sometime this summer, the Supreme Court is ruling on a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade and send abortion law back to the state. So that would mean that there would no longer be a federal right to abortion, but states could decide on their own what their own abortion laws were within within the boundaries of that state. So this means in all likelihood, probably with, with friends, with family members, people in your classes at school, even people at your church, the topic of abortion is going to be coming up. You're going to be having more conversations. And so we want to equip you for those conversations, whether 
you know, you are already pro-life and you just want to be able to explain those views, or maybe you're trying to think about what do I actually believe about abortion? Am I am I actually pro-life? Are there situations where I think abortion is okay? And we want to give you tools to be able to explore that yourself. So uh, Nora and Kate, would you all just explain a little bit of your own pro-life journey and what are a few of those resources that have been so helpful for you all actually really practically fleshing out like, okay, yes, I am pro-life and this is why. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think I think for me, I'm, I mean, I, I, I think I was always pro-life. I came from a pro-life family. Um, but I think what really sent the message home to me was learning about fetal development. Hmm. Um, you know, it it made a difference in in terms of being just abstractly pro-life. This is a good thing um, to understanding that this is a a unique human person. And once you get into the science of it, you see we have this unique DNA that determines so many things about us. Not not just in when we're in developing in the womb, but characteristics that we'll have in childhood, in adulthood. That's all kind of, you know, built into us from the these earliest moments of development. And studying that really made a difference to me. And like hearing hearing the arguments back from the the other side, they'll say, you know, things like this is well, it's 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 growing, it's has a heartbeat, but it's not a it's not a human person. But the response to that is, well, that's not a scientific claim. That's a that's a philosophical claim you're making, and um, so I think I think learning about the science really empowered me to speak out more uh, confidently on the on the issue. And where did you go to learn that science? Was there certain books that you read, or, or websites, or resources that you found really helpful? Um, I think it was when I was in high school. And uh, I went to a high school where, you know, my beliefs, you know, just as a as a pro-life person, as probably a conservative high schooler, which was, you know, always awkward, <laughs> but um, were, were always being challenged. And that encouraged – and which it can be good and bad, but it did encourage me to really look into why I believed it and got me – I don't think I had a specific source, but I was definitely looking online for yeah. – you know, <laughs> yeah, I was Googling uh, to to back up my case because if I was going to be, you know, the only pro-life girl in class, I wanted to have some some solid backing of why why that was, yeah. why I took that position. That's so good. Kate, what about you? Well, yeah, I think I, I mean, the left would say that I was thoroughly brainwashed. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, um, from the time I, I probably was a baby like my parents were taking us to like peaceful protests at uh, abortion clinics like apparently they would have like a bag of M&Ms and we would get like one M&M every five minutes that we were like peacefully praying at the abortion clinic so um, total bribery uh, a lot of long-term brainwashing there but like Nora you know I, you know, just because I came from a pro-life family, obviously there's a huge, huge cultural influence in favor of abortion. And of course, as you get older and you learn about heartbreaking situations like unexpected pregnancies and rape and incest, which I mean are not most abortions, but are some, um, you know, you start to think about it and you're like, is this really definitely a person? Is this, you know, true? Like when if I'm asking, you know, a woman 
to stay pregnant for nine months, I better be sure that this is a real baby. And um, so, again, similar to Nora, I studied a lot about fetal development. I personally find really compelling the argument, if if it's not a human, when does it become one? I mean, mm-hmm. it just seems absurd mm-hmm. to say, like, as our current abortion laws do now, that um, – you know, once you're out of the woman, you're fully human. No one's murdering newborns except for, you know, the very bizarre comment by Governor Northam of Virginia last year. But at least, you know, that is not legal in the United States in theory, um, although they have not passed legislation that would definitely make that illegal. But what is so magical about that? That doesn't make any sense. And then as you go further back into fetal development, it really becomes, well, does the heart make you human? Well, what about people whose hearts don't work, but have new hearts or artificial, you know, medical Mm -hmm. technology. Um, If it's this or that, you know, if it's consciousness, well, what about people in comas? Are they not human? And I just think it's, it's really hard to come up with any answer, except again, um, gosh, I'm really just (laughs) crashing on everything you said, Nora, but (laughs) the unique DNA, you know, once at the moment of conception, you know, a child has his or her own DNA, and I mean, that makes them a separate person and, you know, fully human. fully human. And I realize like it's very tough for a woman who doesn't want to be pregnant. And I feel a lot of empathy for her, but we can't ignore the child's rights mm-hmm. um, and practical resources. I would say a couple of things. One, um, this can be hard to look at. But if you're ever in Chicago, um, the Museum of Science and Industry has this amazing display um, where they show, um, I just looked it up on their website, and I believe it's from 38 days to fairly far along in the pregnancy. They have dead unborn babies on display that oh show goodness. really what the baby looks like. And and I think I first went, um, my grandparents were from Chicago, and so I think I probably saw first saw this exhibit as a child. Um, it's not something that I've ever like spent a ton of time in front of, but just to see it is to know this is not a clump of cells. Um, this is, you know... They might be very tiny, but not not just cells. And um, that's just really powerful and really, you know, a sacred sort of space as you think about those babies who, um, you know, really are donating their lives to science mm-hmm. or their bodies. Yeah. Um, secondly, I would say, um, you know, one of the things that Daily Signal has done over the years that I think um, I've learned a lot from is we've talked to abortion survivors um, a few years ago, I interviewed Claire Colwell um, for the Daily Signal, and she uh, is an abortion survivor. And her talk of that experience, I think it just really drives home, like, you know, like um, your nephew, you know, except, you know, she actually survived an abortion. She was at real risk. And um, now that you see her as an adult woman who's grateful to be alive, you realize what, you know, what were we thinking? Um And I think those sort of stories are really important to share because so often the way our politics work these days, it's not really about logic. It's about stories. And I think sharing that personal stories like hers are so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. No, that's so powerful. Um, And Kate, you talking about the museum made me think of live action has this great video that they made pretty recently called uh, Meet Baby Olivia. And it's just a three-minute video, but it shows the whole process from that moment of conception and how a child develops and, you know, what happens at, um, you know, 14 weeks and, and just throughout. And it's it's really like you can't watch that and walk away and say, oh, that's just a clump of cells because from literally the very beginning, you can see it. it's a little a little human growing yeah, slowly. I, I think what the what the pro-abortion lobby tends to do is 
try to create distance between, mm. you know, mother and child or, you know, just our awareness of the humanity of the unborn. And I think learning about these things really, it really sends the message home that this is, this is a human being. Yeah. And, you know, they, they want to kind of erase that image from, from popular understanding. Yeah, they absolutely do. Well, and that, for me, like I, I grew up in a Christian home and very much so the, the um the belief you know among my parents was you know life begins at conception and the biblical value of life but when i was uh when i was 12 i heard scott klusendorf speak he's the president of uh, life training institute and it was that argument that he made of okay if if you can prove to me that a baby in the womb is not a human okay like you've convinced me i i can be uh pro abortion but it's like if, if you can't convince me of that, then I am always going to be pro-life. And I was like, that just makes so much sense. So he has this fantastic, really succinct and easy like five-minute argument that he goes through. He has an acronym, which I mentioned last week, called SLED. It stands for Size, Level of Development, Environment, and Degree of Dependency. Uh, and just with those four things, he's like, those are the only things that differentiate a baby in the womb from a child outside the womb. It's like size. Okay, well, you know, we're not going to call, uh, you know, a two-year-old less human than we do a 40-year-old man just because he's smaller and, you know, with level of development. Well, obviously, we all develop you know, differently throughout our lives. Again, like you can't say that someone that's more developed is is more human than someone that's not environment. Uh, you know, if you swim under under the water, just because you're in a different environment, you're not all of a sudden not human. Degree of dependency. Kate, like you mentioned, like people that are on life support have pacemakers, these things that are dependent on other resources. Or even just a child. Or a even child just a child. Exactly. dependent on their, their parents, their caregivers. Yeah, they're not any less human. Um, so I really encourage you, you can look up um, Scott Klusendorf, just type in SLED after it on, on YouTube, Google it. It's a great argument, really sound. I feel like one of the most sound arguments for being pro-life that's super succinct. Um, and then, Kate, like you said, like reading other people's stories. There's a great book by a woman named Kathy Harris called Created to Live, Becoming the Answer for an Abortion-Free Community. And she had an abortion and just talks about that process for her, what that cost her, what it cost her family, um, and how she eventually found healing from that. But I think those personal stories are so critical and so important. I agree. Well, stay tuned because uh, up next, we're going to talk about something a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun. Uh, and that's the mystery of where rom-coms have gone. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. Heritage Explains is a weekly podcast that breaks down all the policy issues we hear about in the news at a 101 level. Hosts Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher mix in news clips and music to tell a story, but also bring in heritage experts to help break down complex issues. Heritage Explains offers quick 10 to 15 minute explainers that bring you up to speed in an entertaining way. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We even put the full episode on YouTube. YouTube. 
So back in the day, 2003, the romantic comedy How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, starring Kate Hudson, who I think is great and underrated, although she's been in a lot of bad movies. Anyway, it grossed over $105 million. In 2004, 50 First Dates made more than $120 million. I'm not as big a fan of that one. Uh, <laughs> can you tell? I'm like, ah, I can sort of. Anyway, in 2005, Hitch, which had Will Smith and was actually legit great, became the third highest grossing romantic comedy of all time, taking in almost $180 million. This is amazing. These were like my peak teen years <laughs> in high school. Like, I loved all of these. Live large. <laughs> No rom-com matched the popularity of 2002's My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which grossed over $240 million. Such a good movie. <laughs> yes. I love, oh my gosh, I love the Greek family so much. But what we've seen in, in the last 10 years, 5 to 10 years, is that the popularity of rom-coms, romantic comedies, has just been dramatically declining. Fewer rom-coms are being made and uh, with very few exceptions, one exception being Crazy Rich Asians in 2018. Most Good movie. Yes, I know. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Did enjoy that one. But most romantic comedies, they have not made it big. There have not been crazy sales at the ticket booth. And, you know, if if you go back to 2007, uh, the numbers for just the sheer amount of of rom-coms being made. So in 2007, there were 34 romantic comedies. This is numbers reported by thenumbers.com. And then in 2013, that had fallen to 24 romantic comedies. And in 2019, the numbers reports that that had fallen to 17. And then by last year, it was all the way down to just seven. So, of course, the big question is why? Why is, is Hollywood no longer making romantic comedies? And when they do, why are they not doing well? This is a hard question. It's <laughs> an important question. This is deep. It, it must be answered, though. <laughs> we need to get to the root of this. We will yeah, in the next five minutes. We <laughs> want to see more of them at theaters. Hmm. I don't know. I'm torn on this. Um, one, I feel like they're just not often good when they're released these days, and that's part of the problem. Like, I love rom-coms, but I hate bad rom-coms. Wow, yeah. I'm so profound. But um, <laughs> it's, and I, I don't exactly know. I don't know if they're trying to dumb them down too much. Um, I know I sound like the stereotypical conservative girl, and I know you guys just had a great episode on Jane Austen, but I do think one of the awesome things about Jane Austen is it takes marriage very seriously, her novels. But, like, there's real problems and there's real adults who are trying to work out how can they blend their different approaches to life their different family situations and like rom-coms you know like like despite my own stumbles just leading to bruises and never to a meet cute i'm fine watching that on screen up to a point but like their failure to take on real adult issues i think has unfortunately made them just too dumb i agree i think there's been a, a shift from like the 90s, early 2000s, like peak level of of rom-coms from where the situations would involve kind of real people that you could relate to. And there was this shift kind of in into like cynicism almost about Mm. about the 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 genre and what's what's going on in the movie and also like materialism. So instead of, you know, uh. While you were sleeping with Sandra Bullock, underrated movie. Um, Great movie. <laughs> you know where it's two working class people. There's family involved. There's family dynamics. There's a, a heartfelt story. We move into 
everyone has to be working in fashion. <laughs> and, and, you know, you also have to work in this, like, big feminist subplot or else it's invalid. Yeah. Well, I think they got a little bit boring. It felt like script writers for rom-coms got lazy. It was You mm-hmm. were sort of starting to see the same movie over and over and over. And viewers demand creativity. We want to mm-hmm. see something new. We want to see something fresh. And it just wasn't turning out. So I, I think that it, it's a little bit maybe, you know, it's chicken and the egg argument. I don't know what came first. But um, it's one of those situations where you do have to look at following the money. OK, if if rom-coms aren't making money, no one's going to make them. Mm-hmm. And if you look just over the past 10 years, the top 50 largest grossing movies, there's not one rom-com in that. They're pretty much all action movies. And then you have like Frozen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, well, you have, the, you have the Marvel movies, which mm-hmm. I think just dominate. Yeah, dominate. But I think they actually have a more, uh, you know, like the, an a clearer idea of of love happening in them than you see in these in these modern rom coms where you have to you have to work in all these uh, you know liberal talking points and all these things where where love isn't isn't the the main point. Yeah, yeah, but I do think there's something um, to the point about cynicism growing, and mm-hmm. I think that unfortunately there's good reason for cynicism growing. That as I say that as someone unmarried, and like you know what I've seen, what my friends have seen, you know, I think of like. So many like date stories aren't like, oh, it was magical and great and he really respects me and he's so cute. It's more like, oh, things were sort of going okay and then he paid for dinner but he used a Victoria's Secret credit card which seemed kind of skeevy and I'm not sure how I feel about that. How do you feel about that? And like just these things that you're like – like of course no one wants to see a movie about that or like what's it like when a guy like – you know, tries to rush things to be physical and then doesn't ever talk to you again? Or, like, what if you find out a guy is, like, talking to, like, seven different girls at once, which I think there's something to be saying for playing the field, but, like, if you thought you were moving in an exclusive direction, or, frankly, it's just, like, really ego-deflating. Like, what happened to a guy chasing a girl? Now it's like, oh, I don't know, there's so many girls on these apps, I'm reaching out to all of them, and you're like, I don't even like you that much. Um, So, I, I think some of this, and, you know, I mean, frankly, we also see... um you know, we see stuff like pornography use is just like off the charts. Um, I'm sure that's hurting a lot of male-female relationships in real ways. Um, and marriage rates are down. We've seen it continually fall since 2001. It's just been trending downward, downward, downward. Do you think it? there used to be, back in the heyday, <laughs> do you think there used to be this, you know, understanding that you were kind of seeing something that was attainable on screen, something that was that was, you know, actors, but reflecting some sort of reality, whereas now there there is no they're not reflecting anything back. They're they're just these images that that we that young women aren't really seeing in in their own lives. Yeah. I mean, that's my sense. I know that occasionally, like when having uh, <laughs> myself and my other single sister and having conversations with our mom, sometimes, well, this is a little bit mean, but we'll like show her like screenshots of like actual dating app behavior, whether it's from Instagram <laughs> accounts or like our own experience. And she's like, what? <laughs> we're like, yeah, it's a brutal world out there. This is what there. we're dealing with, mom. <laughs> right. Um, and she's just like, oh, my gosh. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that like, you know, the seven the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s were like, there's plenty of unhappy marriages, plenty of unhappy relationships, plenty of horrible guys and gals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think things were better. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm. Well, we'll be sure to put uh, a poll up on the Problematic Women Instagram account, and you can give us your thoughts, your feedback on rom-coms. And do we need more of them in society? Is this a problem that they are declining? Um, curious to get y'all's feedback. <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Now it is that time once again, our favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Army Air Force World War II veteran, Betty G. Betty was a clerk typist assigned to the 555th Army Air Force Base Unit at Love Field in Dallas, Texas in the 1940s. She actually met her husband while she was serving in the Air Force. He was a pilot. Betty is one of the almost 150,000 American women who served in the Women's Army Corps during World War II. And she is actually about to turn 98 years old. And you have an opportunity to wish her a happy birthday if you would like to. If you uh, listen at all to the Daily Signal podcast, you all have heard me talk about motivational speaker Janine Stang, who's also known as National Anthem Girl. She earned that title when she sang the national anthem in all 50 states. But Janine runs this really cool initiative. She runs what she calls missions, and they are writing letter campaigns to thank our veterans for their service, to celebrate them on their birthdays, on significant days. And so if you want to write Betty a, a happy birthday card and thank her for her service on her 98th birthday, you can do that. Janine is organizing it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes with all the information for where to send that card, how to write it, what to include, what to not include. Her birthday is coming up in March, so you have uh, about a week to do it. But this is a great opportunity to thank our veterans um, for their service and remember that that service and that sacrifice is significant no matter where they served and what they did. So a huge thank you to Betty for her service and a very happy birthday. And one quick reminder before we go today, Lauren and I are going to be at CPAC today through Sunday. If you're there in Orlando, Florida, be sure to stop by our booth, the Daily Signal booth. We're going to have awesome swag. It's going to be a great time. Uh, and be sure if, if you're not there, but you want to keep up with what is going on, the action, be sure that you're following Problematic Women on Instagram and then the Daily Signal across social media platforms. But with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition, hopefully also without TikTok. And <laughs> in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would so appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference. It means a lot to us. Please do it. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.